Hello, everyone. Welcome to Weld Found. I'm your host, Tim Coons. This podcast is made possible by the Weld Community Foundation, who encourages us to spread the good. For more, head to weldcommunityfoundation.org. In today's episode, we hear from Dr. Dick Bond. I got to hear Dr. Bond speak at an event last April. He was 94 at the time, and he was being honored by a local rotary group in Greeley, Colorado. I was blown away. His demeanor, his life story, his humorous self-deprecation. I left feeling really inspired by this man, this man who had led a long and engaged life. And I thought to myself, we've got to record him telling us some of his story. We all need to hear from this legacy human being. So I got in touch with Daniel Powell. He has a company called Liminal Legacy. Daniel produces audio memoirs for people looking to record and preserve the precious stories of those we love and long to learn from. This past summer, Daniel met and recorded Dick, spoke with him about his life as an educator, as an innovator in opportunities for young people, as a philanthropist. Daniel finished up the piece and it turned out wonderfully. We began sharing it with donors at the foundation middle of October. Then on October 26th, we received news that Dr. Bond had passed peacefully at the age of 95. Providentially, we are so grateful to have had the time with Dick to be able to present him in his own words, telling some incredible stories from his life. I hope you find it as stirring and inspiring as I have. The impact of Dick's life is so evident in our community. He will be greatly missed. Big thank you to Daniel Powell and his work on this. If you are interested in creating an audio memoir, capturing some engaging stories, please get in touch with Daniel at liminallegacymedia.com. That's liminallegacymedia.com. I'm going to let Daniel take over the episode from here. Thanks for joining and listening in today to Weld Found. simple joys of childhood is standing on a lake shore with a pocket full of rocks and from that perch slinging those stones and watching as they land in the water with a rewarding splash there's no greater joy in the life of a child than watching each pebble sailing into the surface of the water and leaving behind mesmerizing ripples evidencing its impact But a child becomes an adolescent, and an adolescent, an adult. And we soon find that the simple entertainments of childhood, casting rocks into the water, isn't enough to fulfill us. We desire something more, to have an impact. So we put away childish things and 
set out on a grand search for meaning. Where a child finds joy in each pebble thrown into the water, an adult begins to find their joy in the actions they take to impact the world around them. The deeds and efforts they cast out and invest into their community. This is a story about Dick Bond, a man that has taken many actions over the course of his lifetime, and he's invested so much of himself in the local community here in Greeley, Colorado. And the ripples of his actions, these will be felt for generations to come. At 95 years of age, he's a longtime resident of Greeley, and he's been an influential and important part of the community here. And we have a particular interest in him here as the first president and CEO of the Weld Community Foundation at its inception back in 1996. The following is a profile of Dick Bond, a montage of important moments that have shaped Dick's life and created the man who's become an important and invested part of the community here in Greeley, Colorado, Weld County, and the world. Born in 1927 and came of age during the years of World War II, and as an adult, Dick experienced the years of the civil rights movement and racial integration, and each of these has played a key role in his life in creating the community-minded man that he's become. Well, I was born in 1927 in uh, Lost Creek, West Virginia. It was uh, just at the beginning, early in the Depression, so I went through the, all the kinds of things that, that have happened at that time. The place I grew up in was a little town of about 400, and it was on the B&O Railroad between Washington and Cincinnati. And very frequently, we could sit on our front porch and watch railroad cars go by in which there were men sitting in the doors of those boxcars with their feet sort of hanging out the doorway, having no place to go, having no place to have been, uh, poor as church mice, and uh, they were really uh, homeless and, and had little hope. But they would come to the door and in conversation say, do you have anything to eat? And the answer was yes. My mother would uh, would fix a plate for him. She would always fix a plate for him. It was very simple. You can share what we have. That, that was just a given. It was without pretense or anything. It was just sharing something with a fellow human being. But it was important to recognize that they were fellow human beings and they were hungry and they didn't have a job. And we could help them as what little we could. I grew up both in a family and in a community where it was just assumed you were a part of that community and, and needed to fit in by adding to the value of that community. The business of feeling good and seeing things happen that are positive. That kind of a spirit sort of stuck with me from a very early age. As a young boy, Dick remembers both of his parents being very engaged in serving their local community. 
He remembers the small acts of kindness displayed by his mother, feeding those that were hungry and homeless. And he remembers his father serving the community in special ways as well, watching his father contribute to organized efforts to make much needed improvements to local infrastructure. My father became, uh, he was a faculty member at a a small college there. Uh, He was noted as an administrator for his concern about students and he he was loved by them, but he also was concerned about the community. This was a little town which was subject to floods quite frequently. So they developed this uh, system for of upstream dams there, and he was involved because he recognized how important this was to the community. A unique factor in Dick's upbringing is that he didn't have much exposure to other cultures or races, and he's certainly not alone in this. But what makes him unique is that he didn't ever seem to develop negative or judgmental ideas about those that were different from him. This is Central West Virginia, and there were almost, there were very, very few people uh, that, that were black. For some reason, I had not developed the, the usual kinds of prejudices. In growing up, I never had any, any kind of negative impression about black people. In our family, anyway, there was there was nothing like prejudicial. It was uh, just other people who who are looking for the same kind of thing that we were looking for as individuals. Dick's lack of a prejudicial point of view was a value that was inherited and modeled to him by his parents, and he has a prominent memory related to this during his teenage years. And it was about that time that my father is wanted to work on his master's degree. He took a summer off. Uh, we didn't see him for a while during the time he was in New York City. He went to Columbia. What he told us when we got back, there were students in the class. There were a few black students there at that time also working on their master's degree. And they had been uh, highly selected as my father was, about going there because of the, they were very capable. With that kind of relationship at school, he realized that he could not consider himself better or worse than anybody else. He was just different. And I remember his comment one time, you can't look down your nose on somebody who is smarter than you are. He'd found some very bright young people there in in Columbia. And uh, the consequence was there was absolutely no prejudicial relationship. As I said before, it's hard to look down your nose to somebody smarter than you are. After Dick graduated high school, he left his small hometown in West Virginia and began to encounter a broader world that wasn't as accepting of racial differences. This was in 1946. Uh, at that time, everybody registered every, for the draft. So I knew I was going to get drafted. I joined the reserves at that time, 
and was sent to a little college down in Georgia for my freshman year and found out when I got down there that people would, would crowd black students, black people on the, on the side, crowd them off the sidewalk. In that brief stint in Georgia, that kind of thing was the, the lasting impact. Shortly after that experience in Georgia, Dick came back to West Virginia to continue his college education. During that time, he remembers listening to a speech given by the principal of Kelly Miller High School, the segregated school attended by black members of the community. In the county that we had, there was a single high school, Kelly Miller High School, which dealt with uh, black students. And I remember one year at chapel at the the college, the principal of the uh, high school was invited to be the speaker at at one of our chapels. And the thing I remember that is saying that his graduates there in in West Virginia, a segregated school system, the the best kind of a job offer that a young black man could have from graduating from high school was elevator operator, a complete kind of segregation. Dick continued on in his education and eventually received his doctorate from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He became a college professor And as his career progressed, he soon found himself in roles as a college administrator. And from this new position, he soon found opportunities that would broaden his worldview even further. We had three kids at the time in in upstate New York. And my first administrative job as dean of the faculty at Elmira College. Cornell University, which was about 35 miles away, happened to be looking for someone who could over to work with the University of Liberia. And to make long stories short, the end result was we went to Liberia, West Africa. And we went over there and had an incredible experience in a completely different culture, in a completely different kind of a situation. At that time, a number of our colleagues on the faculty at the University of Liberia were mixed marriages one, one black, one white. And they, they were ostracized in this country in, the, in those days where a mixed marriage was an absolute no-no and the person was penalized in many respects for marrying out of their race. I think that the biggest experience for us was recognizing that, that race absolutely makes no difference in terms of basic human values. How valuable it was to have friends whose color is different from ours, but it knows no difference. After spending two years in Liberia, Dick returned to the States for a period of home leave, and he experienced quite a racial culture shock from the moment his plane landed at the airport. I was absolutely amazed when I came into New York City, flying in from uh, Liberia, and all all of the porters and so forth were black, uh, most of them were, and I thought to myself, gee whiz, I was sort of back to where the the, uh, 
high school principal said that the only aspiration for for black people was was elevator operator. Dick returned to Liberia and spent another year in West Africa. Eventually, he came back to the States for good in 1966 when he accepted a job at the University of Illinois. He treasured his cross-cultural experience and sought to create similar opportunities for students at his new college. When I came back from Liberia, I came back to Illinois State University having been recruited by them as academic vice president. And I remember so distinctly sitting in my office with my new assistant there, who was a young young man. And I said, I looked out the window, I said, look at these kids. Here they are in central Illinois. a little chance to, to have the same kind of experience I've had. But there are many different kinds of cultures in this in the United States. And so I just picked up the phone and called a guy in Alabama and one in Montana and one somewhere else. And I said, let's, let's trade students. And we did that. That first year, there were four institutions involved. The next year, there were eight institutions involved because they liked the notion of students being able to spend a semester or a year in another part of the country, the experiencing different kinds of cultures. And you, you, you find that's exciting to see that kind of spread to other students to explore something that was different, something which would add something to their education. And the result is some increase in the richness of their lives. But that developed in the, into the National Student Exchange. That was started in the early 60s, so you can tell it's an old organization now. At its peak, I suspect there was between two and 3,000 students a year with probably 125 options among institutions. After about 35 years of existence, serving probably about 120,000 students over the over those years. It's still going strong. It was hurt by the pandemic, but uh, it's still in existence and coming back, so I can't tell you exactly how many are involved this year. In addition to creating opportunities for students in other parts of the country, Dick also sought to create opportunities for students who wished to attend the University of Illinois. As a young vice president at Illinois State, I recognized that that there were some things that were going on in the community which was uh, were affecting my job. At Illinois State, what was happening there was all of a sudden there were opportunities for black students in normally white institutions in central Illinois. And there was a sizable black population in East St. Louis and in Chicago. I was involved in bringing more black students from either of those areas, giving students an opportunity that they never had before. And to have 
more black students come from either of those areas into central Illinois was a spectacular. That occurred in the early, in the middle part of the 1960s. There was a great deal of racial discrimination and uh, concern at that time. And, and there was a great deal of resentment on the part of uh, some of the citizens there that uh, we were getting more black students at Illinois State University. That, that was a, a point of objection to some of the people in, in central Illinois who had had no experience with different racial situations. And I remember at the time that Martin Luther King was, was killed when some of the students from Chicago who had come down there, they wanted to express themselves by putting the American flag in a half-staff. And we supported that, sort of encircled with our cars, that of the flagpole, because there were some people in the community who were willing to use guns and everything to get that flag back up where it was supposed to be. They could not imagine that. So, and it was, I shouldn't say that it was a lonely battle because there were others on the, on the forefront there who were willing to suffer the consequences. But, but our internal policies at Illinois State were very clear. The faculty and administration there was very supportive of what, of what we were doing. With the influx of black students, the University of Illinois also focused on increasing the number of black faculty members, and Dick played a key role in making these additions. However, racial attitudes in the community of Normal, Illinois presented some unique challenges to making the addition of these new faculty members a reality. At that time, in central Illinois, it was difficult for a black person to find a house because people didn't want didn't want black people in their neighborhood. It was very simple. The mayor of the city of Normal, Illinois, was a realtor, and he was he was supporting that business of keeping people segregated from each other. Our closest friends at Illinois State University, our closest friends were a, bl- a black couple, whom I had to fight to get housing in, in central Illinois. This, this was about, about 1968. That was the beginning, of really, of integration of the faculty. It was not a matter of finding housing for black students because there were dormitories, and the university's policy was very clear, a non-segregation kind of a situation. For black students coming in from from Chicago or or St. Louis to be faced entirely in a white community, that's a tough transition. The first black faculty member was a man named Charles Morris, and Dick fought hard to find him and his family a place to live so he could begin working at the University of Illinois. Charles Morris was a young mathematician that uh, had had his graduate degree 
who came to normal, uh, he was employed by their good possible faculty member, but he could not find housing. And so I spent a lot of time trying to find this young faculty member a, a place to live. In the process, he and his wife became good friends. I remember how difficult it was and how I unfavorably rubbed shoulders with with people in city council and so forth for whom this was uh, deflating the, the way they had thought about things before that. Oh, yes, it was difficult. Doors were slammed in our faces and so forth, but it's a matter of persistence. You had to live with what the situation was, but you also had to somehow change the situation to bring it about. During Dick's time in Normal, Illinois, the student body of the school nearly doubled in size, creating many opportunities for both black students and faculty members. Before I had left, the institution had grown from about 8,000 to 15,000. With that change, the number of black students was increased phenomenally. And we went from one to 53 faculty black faculty members in that period of time. So watching that change, Ben, and in many respects, being a part of that change has been enlightening and, and also satisfying. Proud of all that he had accomplished as the Vice President of Academic Affairs at the University of Illinois, in 1971, Dick and his family moved to Greeley, Colorado, when he accepted the position of college president at UNC. 1971 was the year that we first came to Greeley, when I became president of the University of Northern Colorado. Moved a whole family here. It was interesting, because having had that experience in uh, Illinois of more integration. When we came here, there, had, there was not a very large group of uh, black students, but there was a sizable group of, group of Hispanic students which were uh, here. So uh, during that first year, I can't remember which came first, whether I was approached by the black students or approached by the Hispanic students. Both groups approached Dick as the new president and were curious about his views on racial issues within the school. I remember in both of them, I told the students there, don't listen to what I'm saying about integration. Don't, don't let me tell you how I feel. Go look at what I've done. Uh, and I think that's a, I think that's the logical answer. Anybody can talk about being free of bias in action, but uh, you sometimes have to prove it. I later on found out that one of the Hispanic students here had indeed gone back to uh, Illinois and had checked me out, and they found out that uh, that indeed I had. I had worked on the matter of integration, 
at that time. When the student returned from Normal, Illinois, with the information he had learned about Dick's work there, he didn't just learn that Dick had worked on the matter of integration. His report was that in Normal, Illinois, Dick is known as the bastard who brought the blacks to town. That's a moniker that's been slightly paraphrased here to make it radio appropriate. But needless to say, Dick had a reputation in Normal, Illinois. And that moniker, that is a nickname that Dick proudly accepts and wears with honor. During his time at UNC, Dick had the privilege of naming three buildings on the UNC campus that were built during his time as president. And he left something of a legacy through these building names, not in addition to his own legacy, but a legacy of recognition of those individuals who often remain nameless. I was involved in the naming of just three buildings. One was the library. The library is, is a natural because of James Mitcher. Mitcher is a much more normal kind of, of name for the library because here's a man who has written quite a little bit, who was on the faculty here and distinguished and, and so forth. But... Uh, Candelaria Hall, that's another one that I was involved in. And he was the first Latino faculty member. I was criticized for naming that after an Hispanic person. And the other one is the housing. One of the halls is named after a a well-respected cook, Gunderson. This was an unusual one. It was the honor those staff who have been nameless, largely nameless, but who have had an impact on the students from a different way. I'm proud of the names in particular of Gunderson and, uh, and Candelaria. They are recognizing people who would ordinarily not be recognized. Candelaria nurtured young Hispanics who came here to school. He provided a home for them, and I'm not talking about a physical space, but he's, he, he made the university home for them. And the same thing with Gunderson, the cook, who, who as, a, as a staff member, welcomed students and served them and served them well. In both of those cases, they symbolize people who have who have been important in the lives of students, important really down at the grassroots level. And the reason I did that was because of, for two reasons. I needed to, to reflect that the university is a, is a universal uh, number, number one, but more importantly, from my standpoint, I wanted our staff members to recognize that they, too, are part of the educational process. Each of us is molded by the kind of experiences that we've had. Every time a student comes in contact with a cook or with a housekeeper or what have you, they are adding to their own kind of experience. 
students are getting educated by people who have had a varied kind of experience. And, and that is what makes life so rich. After Dick stepped down from his presidency at UNC, he decided to campaign for a seat on the Colorado State Legislature. After I had been president, the opportunity came to run for the legislature. I had never experienced something like that before. And I decided to take a crack at it, that uh, we, had, we had gone through many, many weeks of going house to house and, and rather enjoyed talking with people who would later become constituents. And I remember going with my wife and kids to the night to, to count the votes, and I told them to expect a, lo- a loss. I said to them, uh, I'm not going to get elected. There's no way I could get that many votes. And I'll be darned if, if at the end of the evening uh, I didn't come out the winner. There I was in a, something that I was unexpected. Dick held that seat unopposed for three terms, during which he's proud of the work he did on anti-tobacco legislation, school choice legislation, and the Post-Secondary School Options Act enabling kids to attend college while still in high school. And after I'd had that experience there, and I said that I would be in the legislature for only three terms. And so I ran for Congress. And the night I was awaiting those returns there, I told the family and I told the press, I said, hey, I'm a, I'm a winner in either case. If I'm elected, I go to Washington, and if I'm not elected, I don't have to. But at the same time, glad that I, glad that I was knocked elected, elected, and it turned out I was able to do more for people, not in the legislature, than I was if I had been in in the Congress, and. Shortly after I was defeated, I was offered the opportunity of going to first to Front Range Community College as an interim person, knowing that it would be interim. But later that spring, Jerry Wardgo, the head of the community college system, suggested I might like to spend a couple of years at Fort Morgan as president of that community college. And it was during that first year, um, I asked myself, what can I do that is lasting? And it occurred to me that there is a mechanism that people don't even think about, and that is to establish some sort of a foundation which legally extends well beyond the, the years that I'm on the earth. And it was then I decided simply to form the Bond Family Foundation, whose function is to, was thinking that at that time of doing the, the little things that uh, make a difference in the lives of people and, and which will extend, and that influence will extend well beyond the years that I'm on this earth. 
And it was so simple to do because all I had to do was get it started. And each year I kept adding to a little bit to it, as anybody could, and each addition is a tax-deductible kind of thing. And uh, you, you, get, you eventually get your family involved in trying to decide what the, what the Bond family is all about. So that was back in 1995, and it has continued since. So part of it comes out of a personal goal of seeing things happen, and the other is the responsibility you have as an educated person to make that more than just happenstance, but something that can be planned and, and organized in such a way that it can be effective. After starting the Bond Family Foundation in 1995, eventually Dick accepted a role to lead another foundation. In 1996, he took the position of president and CEO of a foundation that was just getting off the ground, the Weld Community Foundation, which when it started, went by another name, the Community Foundation serving Greeley and Weld County. And that's the thing, I think, which attracted me to the Weld Community Foundation, uh, which was not called that. It was not even in existence at that time because I knew that there were other people who would face the same dilemma. Dick served as president of the Weld Community Foundation from 1996 until the year 2000. His goal was to grow the foundation to $10 million. And after accomplishing that goal, he stepped down. So let me just zoom out. Just your thoughts. Like, why... Why philanthropy? Why give back to the community? Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a hard question to answer. Part of it is explained in a book by David Brooke. And he wrote a book called Second Mountain. What happened to him, and I could tell you of what happened to me and what happens to many people who spend a good part of their lives in building a career and advancing and advancing in that career and hitting, hitting a very high spot. And then you suddenly find that that's not all, that there is a second mountain which is different from the first one. And very frequently that second mountain is a community-oriented kind of thing where what, what you continue to do lives in a different way than what you had been known for in your career. But part of it is just an expression of gratitude for being alive. I have, have so much to owe to other people for the opportunities I've had and the extent to which I can be involved in, in providing that opportunity for somebody else, it just seems to me to be worthwhile. 
of philanthropy is a kind of paying back for where you are. If you have been successful, philanthropy is is a way to give it back. I, I sort of I sort of have a feeling that I owe something for for being alive, being alive. And I, and I think uh, you do too. I would never have guessed that. Uh, would be anything but a college professor. I never had any desire to be a college president. That never even occurred to me. And some people, uh, that is their mountain. That's a professional pinnacle. And and uh, I, I can identify half a dozen people who changed careers because what was important to them had more to do with uh, the community. When I spoke about going to Washington, and you didn't, if I when I go to Washington, if I lose, I go. I don't home. I'd be willing to bet you that, in terms of the value to the community that I have done more here than I would have done in Washington. Dick has been a very involved and passionate member of the community as he sought to make a positive impact on Greeley and Weld County. And he's done this in so many ways. He created the Bond Family Foundation, and he was the first president and CEO of the Weld Community Foundation. And beyond that, he was one of the founders of Salida del Sol Academy, He was a co-founder of the Greeley Dream Team. He's served with Habitat for Humanity, and he's been on their advisory board. He's a founding board member of the Poudre Heritage Area, and he's a founding board member of the Poudre Learning Center. And the list could go on. A different way to put it is the foundation enabled you to continue to influence society in some way. What the World Community Foundation is is a combination of people who have come to the same conclusion. They want to continue to to influence way beyond their life lifespan. Where the community foundation has been effective is where it has been able to locate people who have a in a sort of an innate sense that things can be better and can be improved in such a way because where you, you feel you may have individual goals that are worthwhile, you may find that, that, that those individual goals fit together with some other individual goals from several other people and that the combination is more effective than either of them can be by themselves. What's interesting to me about the Community Foundation is the fact that it has so many different goals. It may have an go- overall goal, which is a community, but it's comprised of little, little bits and pieces. If you take a look at the well, Community Foundation, there's a whole list of things there. But every one of those 
were started by somebody who wanted to continue to give long after they were around. And they can do it by, by giving cash. They can go by doing insurance policies or what have you, which, which do that. And that's the way funds gets, individual funds in the community foundation get started. There are hundreds of little things there. And part of the function of the community foundation is to find the similarities among them and find that there are enough people who do little things that the combination of those little things becomes a big thing. As John Muir once said, uh, you find that everything is related. Everything is attached to everything else. And we are either a part of this community or we aren't a part of this community. Well, that's, that's it. That's probably about all I need to say. <laughs> Dick is a man who absolutely cares about his community. And with a focus on seeing the humanity in each person he comes into contact with, he's deeply invested in the lives and well-being of those around him. He strived to recognize those who'd normally remain nameless, and he sought to create opportunities and build bridges for those normally overlooked or forgotten. With his passion for creating positive transformation within his community, he's devoted himself to organizing his efforts and the efforts of others in such a way so that they will not only create a momentary benefit, but leave a lasting and positive impact. The local community in Greeley and Weld County has reaped many benefits as a result of this man's presence and will continue to feel the impact of his presence and actions for years and years to come. This piece was commissioned by the Weld Community Foundation. It was recorded and produced by Daniel Powell and Limited Legacy Media. A special thanks goes out to Dick Bond for investing his time, and also to Tim Coons for dreaming up the concept and his involvement in making it a reality. <laughs>